Hey friends, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. I'm your host, Rick Alexander. If you are getting anything out of this show, it would mean the world to me if you would share it with other people that you think it might resonate with, or even head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Both help us to get more listens and to just climb the ranks and get the show out there to more and more people, which honestly I'm really passionate about because this is the show that I needed for, for so long as my own curiosities got the best of me and my consciousness was growing more complex and more interested in the world beyond my own perceptions, I really found a lack of answers and it was my adventure into philosophy, theology, and psychology that continues to help satiate some of those unanswerable longings that uh, I think we all have at some point, whether we allow ourselves to recognize it or not. Also, if you want to work with me, I have a couple of ways to do that in August. Of course, I have the Identifying Your Call to Adventure workshop on August 21st. You can pay whatever you want to attend. I have the Clarity Academy starting on August 30th, and I will put all of the info for that in the show notes of this episode and also at rickalexander.com. And then finally, I have a couple of one-on-one spots opening for coaching in August. So if you really want to work with me in a one-on-one container where I can really hold a compassionate space, help you think through some of the things that you're wrestling with. I would love to do that. You can apply uh, again at rickalexander.com or in the show notes of this episode. After you apply, I will reach out. We'll jump on a quick call to even see if it's a good fit. And then if it is, we'll go from there. All right, without further ado, on to the great way. Today's musings are about the teacher and the path. And when I talk about the path, or when I talk about the teacher, I'm talking about the great way. I'm talking about the spiritual path. This isn't, and you'll notice this in all of my work, I never am trying to either uplift or disavow any one religion. Rather, I'm interested in the spirituality from which all religions flow, the spirit from which all religions flow. And in order to really continue to make sense of the work that I'm going to put out on this podcast and the musings, a couple things are really important to remember. The first one is that episode two in A Thousand Names for God, where I named the episode after the show. Really, I broke down a lot of philosophy and what happens when consciousness is expanded or becomes more complex, becomes aware of more of the picture than one's original perception. And and so a lot of this work is going to be dependent on you at least recognizing that because I'm going to build off of that more and more. And then the other thing to remember is that, again, these are all musings. They're explorations into things that I'm interested in, things that I've noticed in my own path, my own journey, and none of it is meant to be dogma. So if it doesn't work for you, if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't resonate with you, to click let let that part of it go. And if parts do awaken something in you, which I would say is always the point of these teachers and these paths, then lean into it, right? Start to uh, ask yourself more questions about it. Start to sit with it a little bit more and ask yourself where it might be true. If something resonates, then 
we use the word resonate because it feels as though there's something in your body that that recognizes that as truth. And so if something resonates, lean into that and just see where it takes you even, and this is the hard part, if it scares you. Because a lot of times when we have grown up with really strict ways of thinking about the world, really dogmatic ways of thinking about the world, and then we are exposed to something else and that thing really calls to us in some way or or resonates with us in some way, well, we have to at that point, depart from our conditioning, which can be really, really difficult. And one of the beauties of the spiritual path, as I'll talk about, is the idea that it actually does help you depart from your conditioning. It does help you reprogram yourself in concert with, well, with the absolute rather than with the tribal consciousness or the whatever consciousness that you were raised at. And again, in this episode, I'll actually unpack a little bit of why that matters. I want to start this off with a quote by Theodore Nottingham. He said, In ancient times, the temple of Delphi proclaimed, Know thyself. And the Greek philosophers made it their central theme. Because in the knowing of one's true self, we discover not a name or a lineage, but a whole new dimension of what it means to be human. In our very mortality is embedded something of the eternal encased within the bones and sinews that are destined to disintegrate is spirit that comes from beyond and returns home when we are born into heaven as the orthodox say or when we cross that threshold these ideas cannot be reduced to mere belief systems and dogmas they have been vividly part of the human experience from the beginning and that is really what the spiritual path is asking you to embark on. This is something we're, we're always standing on the shoulders of giants. This is something that is uniquely human, right? We think about we're 99% animal, 99% monkey. But at the same time, we have in us the recognition of some sort of depth, something deeper, some sort of transcendent other, transcendent reality in which we can bring our lives into concert. And and again, as I've said on here, this is the path of self-discovery, that there's actually far more to you. So knowing oneself is the doorway to the spiritual path, right? It's only when you begin to question your self-identity that more can begin to reveal itself. And so this is something I'm going to talk about a lot today because this self-identity often keeps us from fully experiencing the world. If you remember back to episode two, certain people are looking at the house and they're like, well, the wall's red, right? The wall's blue. You might think about that first picture of what you see as your self-identity. It's actually letting go, realizing, what if I don't have the whole picture of who I am? What if I can't see everything? What if I can't see all that I actually am? What if there are parts of me that are actually hidden to myself and based on the worldview that I grew up in or whatever, I'm not actually able to to recognize it. It's that opening to the fact that there might be more than what you can perceive or conceive that starts to allow you to recognize the limits of your own perceptions and then you start to realize that there's a great mystery that exists between the end of your finite perceptual lens and the infinite mystery of being. Remember when we use the word God, we're using the word analogous with infinity. And so because infinity 
breaks our categories, that all of the categories in which we know things, we know things intellectually, we measure things materially, right? That's because we are finite. And so we're interacting with finite ideas, finite objects. But when we start to venture into the infinite, there starts to be mystery there. And what happens is if people don't bow to that mystery, right? If they don't recognize that this thing is so much bigger than they are, but they're, some, they're part of it in some integral way. If people seem to know all the answers, right? The people that have all of the answers, they rarely have any real reverence for life, right? Because reverence is a symptom of awe. It's a respect for, right? So it's to respect that which is so much greater than oneself. But again, it is being open, open to the fact that you actually don't know all of who you are, where you come from, or why you're here, that creates the space for mystery to exist. There's a line in the Tao Te Ching, verse 72, that speaks to this. It says, when they lose their sense of awe, people turn to religion. When they no longer trust themselves, they begin to depend upon authority. Therefore, the master steps back so that people won't be confused. He teaches without a teaching so that people will have nothing to learn. The Tao Te Ching is really hard because it it will require that you scramble your perceptual lens over and over to try to grasp the depth of the lessons which are being talked about. But this idea that when we turn to religion, when we lose our sense of awe, and what's interesting is when you have a moment of touching the absolute or the real or the essential, what's essential about you, you realize like that's the experience of getting in the helicopter and realizing, oh, there's so much more here than I could have ever imagined. And so just something for you to pay attention to when you're checking out spiritual paths and you're listening to spiritual teachers, pastors, whatever it is, the people that seem to know, right, that have all of the answers, that don't bow to mystery, that don't recognize how much more there is to life than what they know, you can rest assured that they are likely mistaking the the size of their own perceptual lens. They they are finite, but they have mistakenly believed that the truth in which they know is infinite. And those two things are are they're completely different ways of knowing. And so this is why in wisdom traditions it's all about recognizing what you don't know, because that experience of recognizing what you don't know gives you the humility so that you can make room for the mystery, so that you actually can be in awe of this universe that you are somehow embedded within. So we have to talk about the difference between religion and spirituality here, because I'm kind of hinting at it. But if you remember, I said that religion comes from the Latin re-ligament to re-ligament. So it's to come up with a unifying theory that re-ligaments the entire cosmos, right, in one idea. And that idea at the very top is God, and that's a transcendent other. So that's a value of ultimate importance. It's a value that is higher than all material values. Remember, it transcends our categories in every conceivable and fathomable way. And so when we think about religion, it's important to remember that it is a philosophy. That's why the facets of philosophy are really important. Like when I'm studying, when I just took a year to study theology, for example, in a master's program, 
right? We're learning about epistemology and ontology, right? These are the philosophical underpinnings of the belief system. So epistemology is like how we know what we know. Ontology is the study of being in itself. And so what's happening there is that you're using the intellect in order to re-ligament everything that ever is, was, or could be. Right? And that's the idea of religion. Now, we don't want to confuse that with the spiritual experience, right? And, and the actual touching of the absolute. Because though the two are designed sometimes, you know, sometimes to work in concert, they're not the same thing. And what I'm going to talk a lot about today is spirituality, the spiritual path, not the religious path. Though, again, they're in this sort of symbiotic relationship. But one of the things that Jung said is that one of the chief goals of religion was actually to reduce spirituality. And this is, that's an interesting thing to really sit with and think about too, because when you think about spirituality, it is the thing that is without borders, right? And so it can't be defined. If we go back to Hebrew consciousness, right, in the Old Testament, for example, when they use the word spirit, they're using the word for wind and spirit as the same word. It's ruach. And so what that tells you when you think about the wind, how, it, how futile it is, for example, to trap the wind, to use a New Testament reference, right? You can't confine it. It cannot be defined. And so spirituality, it bursts through containers as a birthright. It's not at all concerned with being confined or reduced. It, it actually can't be. If, if it's being reduced, then we're no longer talking about spirituality, right? And it's important to recognize that things that can't be confined or controlled are dangerous. If your stated goal is to control something, I have this experience I talked on here before. I was like eight months from getting out of the military and I was feeling very victimized by you know, where I was at and, and what was going on in my life. And then when I had this moment of touching the absolute, which was always fleeting, right? It's, it takes a long time and a lot of work usually to get those spontaneous experiences to be abiding where we sort of know it all the time and we're in the presence of the absolute. But even a touch of that experience, what you realize is like one of the things that I left that experience with was the realization that I was, we are spiritual beings and we're going through a temporary human experience. Now, I would never try to convince anyone else of that because, you know, I had the experience that that made me know that in my bones, it's deeper than intellect. And so I could try to put that into a nice philosophy to explain. But at the at the time, it was just like, whoa, this is big. Like this feels like my entire world was just was as if I was looking at the world, thinking it was one thing. and And then somebody came and just like, as if they were to put their hands on the top of the sky and peel it open and it extended infinitely in every direction and it was so much bigger and more expansive than I could have imagined. I'm just trying to use metaphors. All these metaphors are falling way short, right? Infinitely short, actually, technically speaking. But what I came away with was the realization that because this is true, I'm not somebody that could be victimized. Like I... I mean, I, I can be victimized, I, the ego, me, but there was something in me that was so much deeper that I just wasn't free on license. It was free, it was a kind of freedom on principle. And there's a danger in that because I didn't feel, you know, I, I realized that in that moment, it was like, oh, now I actually can just decide, do I want to 
obey all of these rules that have been set to corral my life, right? And that's what the military does. It gives you all these rules and things that help you, uh, that make you a, a good soldier or sailor. But I realized that it was up to me if I wanted to obey them, but I certainly wasn't victimized by them. And there's always something dangerous about true freedom. What happens is when you think about the philosophy of religion, right, the doctrines, remember, those are the things, as I said in the last episode, that that help you create guideposts and lane lines so that you can take the potential and make it into something. It's a path. It walks you towards something. But again, spirituality bursts through those lane lines and guideposts almost as a birthright. And so when you have an experience of touching this transcendent other or waking up to the fact that, that maybe the world is bigger than you've, you could imagine it to be, literally could imagine it to be, right? In those moments, again, you become free in a way that the world is pretty uncomfortable with. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of religious teachings have been reduced to moral rules and lessons and laws and things along those lines, right? I mean, I grew up in a Christian church and I remember that there was so much emphasis on like making vows, like not to have sex before marriage and not drinking. So you can see what they're doing. They're focusing on the the morality. They're focusing on the symptoms. But this is <laughs> this is funny because this is actually how humanity works. Now, if you think about the Old to New Testament and that whole sort of arc of the story of what happens, the Old Testament is the law. And the law, again, these are the lane lines. These are what help you make something of yourself. So they're given to you. So if you follow this, it will help you realize your own potential. It will help guide you toward being in concert with the absolute. But then the Old Testament is just full of humans failing to be able to do that. They're failing to be able to uphold the law. And then as you move into the New Testament, for those that do, what happens is that this Jesus figure emerges as an embodiment of the underlying ethic behind the law. So now it's no longer about the rules right? It's actually about embodying the ethic, which we find out is love at the very bottom of the law. And that's why when all of these Pharisees and lawmakers are trying, they're always trying to trick him, right? They're trying to get him to say something that goes against the law because he's not confined by the law. He fulfills the law in an, as an embodiment of the underlying ethic. The law is fulfilled. And so you'll notice in those stories that people are always trying to catch him in some sort of a catch-22. They're always trying to ask him the right question that will get him to break the law so they can condemn him. When people say, oh, what's the most important commandment? They're trying to catch him in a way of breaking the law. And then his answers are always more wise. They're, they're always at, coming from a consciousness that is so far above the consciousness of the person asking the questions that they often just get frustrated with the answer because they realize that they don't have the ability to trap him. So it's really funny that we would take that. Well, it's not that funny, but it's interesting. It tells you a lot about human behavior and, and the way in which we hope to control people and other things. But anyway, we take that and then we make it back into a moral teaching, back into a, a list of what to do, rights and wrongs. And spirituality gives you, it shows you that all of those 
are actually a byproduct of the underlying ethic. And the spiritual path is meant to walk you toward that absolute. It walks you toward a fullness of being, a fullness of yourself, not less. You don't have to repress in order to fulfill the spiritual path. That's not spirituality. There's a quote from an early church father, Augustine, who says, love God and do as you please. And if you remember how our attention works, how we create our world, how we become what we love, then our actions are a byproduct of that thing. And so if you give the most amount of your attention to the transcendent ethic, the, the absolute, that which is higher or more encompassing than everything the world can present, well, then your behavior actually becomes a symptom of your love, attention, and worship to that higher thing. And so, again, the spiritual path is it's rearranging your worldview. It's getting rid of things that don't matter, helping you create a focus on what does matter, and then your resulting life becomes a symptom of that thing. And if you think about how meaning works, right, we get the subjective sense of meaning. Like We feel like our life is meaningful, when our actions come into line into alignment with our intrinsically held value system. So if you think about what the spiritual path is doing, is it's asking you to rearrange your life in service to the highest value conceivable, and it makes your life intensely meaningful because then everything else that you do is then in relation to the highest possible value. This is one of my issues with the prosperity gospel, right? Because in the prosperity gospel, you're really praying for things that you need. So the goal is, oh, if I ask right, I can manipulate the world. I can manipulate my life to give me what I think I want. But the truth is the ego has no idea what it wants. The spiritual life actually asks the, the ego to surrender. And one of the points I was trying to get across in the first episode with that whole monologue from Jesus about trusting life is that, that's what the spiritual path asks you to do. You actually surrender to that trust. You put your aim in the highest possible place and you trust that life is going to take care of you. And as I said, God comes to you disguised as your life. So when you look at things like the prosperity gospel, it's actually walking you back into the trap that, spirit, that the spiritual life actually frees you from. Right? And this is to blame for these really simplified God images. Like if we were to canvas most of America, most of Western culture, and they were to describe God, it would sound something like a cross between Zeus and Santa Claus. Right? It would sound something like a, a divine account keeper, whereas if you just do the right things and, and keep your account good enough, say the right words, then you're going to get all of the things that you need. And that is not at all what the spiritual path is about. It's not at all what spirituality gives you. What spirituality gives you is freedom, as I said. It's freedom from all of the things that the ego has convinced itself it needs in order to feel good, in order to feel accepted, in order to get belonging. And to some degree, I would say that the same thing is true when we take these teachers, these paths, and we turn them into moral teachings. We turn them into a list of things to do and not do. We're creating that simplified God image, which falls infinitely short of the infinite love of infinity, the source of all that is. And we try to make it into this thing that we can understand. And of course, the beauty of God is that it's something you do not understand. It's something beyond you. And then think about the internal war that happens when you try to please this God image. And so you 
telling yourself to do something, to just force yourself to be different, to be better, or whatever the hell, you know, whatever it is that you tell yourself. It's important to understand that what you're doing there is you're really just rearranging ego contents, right? You're just trying to use the willpower. You're just trying to force something. And the spiritual path is asking you to do the opposite of that. The spiritual path is asking you to surrender to divine will, to give your attention to something like a transcendent ethic, something like love, if you can conceive of love that is actually all accepting. And if you can, what happens is it you feel an internal shift in your heart as a result of that, and then you don't feel attracted to the things that for so long you were trying to force yourself not to do. And so what I would like to present is that a good life, the life abundant, as John would say in the New Testament, is actually a result of you giving your attention to something more important, not you trying to force yourself to be a certain way to please Zeus. And I think we all know that it doesn't work when we try to reduce these capital T truths, the, the, the truth of the absolute, to a moral teaching, right? And I would say that what's happening when churches are trying to get kids to, you know, to have vows, not to have sex, or things like that, they're trying to corral their behavior. They think that they can if they could just instill enough will or maybe enough fear or maybe enough of enough of what the good book says, then they won't give in to this animalistic urge and what they don't understand is that they're trying to go against thousands of years of biological evolution that's all going to crush your moral teachings the moment that they're in the back seat with somebody that they think they're lo- they love when they're 16 years old or, or whatever it is. And so it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the human psyche works to try to force people into this account keeper paradigm. And then what's worse is when you can't keep up with the account, when you do things that are against the moral teachings of the church or whatever it is, you then beat yourself up. You internalize the tyrant and you become that. And then you live in hell. Then you live with guilt and then you live with shame. But you know what would help is if you just had a relationship with the transcendent ethic that you understood that you were always accepted and you were always loved no matter what and that you had the freedom to make the best choice for you in love, not in fear. That would be a completely different way of being and that's what the spiritual path actually gives us. And so whenever you find yourself on a spiritual path, whatever your practice is, right? All humans have the religious impulse. It's understood by Jung as an instinct, actually. And so yoga, church, whatever it is, you always want to ask yourself, is that, am I being... Am I being led to a place of more freedom, more abundance, more fulfillment of self, or a place of more repression? Because those aren't the same thing at all. Because though the spiritual path can free you, it can just as well trap you. You see this with people who have been part of a religious path, but they themselves aren't growing. And, you know, there's so many good reasons that people are skeptical about church or religious paths, and a lot of it is around hypocrisy. And one of the reasons being is because if the spirituality is stifled out of a religion and so the person's not becoming more free, if they're not themselves incarnating the divine, which is one of the deepest lessons of the Christ myth, they become unconscious replicas of that belief system. And so they'll be able to spout off scripture references and doctrines and what to do. 
but they themselves will remain unchanged, right? So their ego function will only grow rather than die. And this is one of the reasons why people elevate or inflate their ego to be equal with the infinite and to profess that they know what God wants or something along those lines because they're not going through the fire, right? Remember, Jesus says, only if you are born again, you can enter the kingdom. And so without death, though, right, one grows stagnant and is no longer in accordance with life itself because life is dynamic. Life is moving forward. Life is always changing. And so the way that we stay in concert with the reality that we've been born into is to go through these psychological deaths We have to let go of our old patterns of being whenever we find something more real or more true is emerging and shattering our current conceptions. Dying to all of that, dying to the outer edges of yourself so that you can allow what's essential, your essence, what's real about you to come forward. That's the process that keeps you in a dynamic or symbiotic relationship with life itself. But you'll notice that people that don't do that, they do a couple of things. One, they inflate their ego so that they think they know more than they know. This is also what's shown in the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Those that know the least are the people that think they know the most. And the people that know the most are aware of how much they don't know and thus are the most humble and quick to say that they don't actually know. So all of this is taking place right here. But what I'm outlining is... If you're not open to change, if you're not open to reality, bursting your picture constantly of what you actually think it is, then what you have to do, because reality is doing that, because we have such small, finite awareness, our perception is so limited, it's limited by our personality and our shadows and our blind spots. And so if we don't accept that, if we decide not to die, if we decide not to evolve, then what we have to do is actually deny all of the other parts of reality. And so this is what happens in a lot of religious traditions is maybe they have questions or maybe they get an insight that God is much bigger than they could possibly imagine, but they have to start denying that. And so If I were to present something like episode two, where I say, well, depending on your perception and personality, you're going to intimate God in a number of different ways. And I could explain to you why those ways might be coming up more. See, you're going to have to deny all of that to keep your picture of reality, to keep your picture of God, to keep things stagnant because life is anything but stagnant. Now, the beauty is that if we can die to that, if we can die to our small perception, then we open up ourselves to the mystery. And what the mystery does in life, having reverence for the mystery, for everything that we don't know, is it actually delivers us from this small world that we thought we were trapped in. This is what the the experience of God actually gives you. This is why it's so healing because so much of our ailments and our neuroses come from the fact that we feel like we have to live a life that we don't actually want to live. What I would present to you is that the spiritual path is the exact opposite of that. The spiritual path says, look, you have a yearning in your heart for wholeness. There's a yearning in your heart for an expansiveness, for a truth that this world cannot satiate and cannot satisfy, no matter how much you try, no matter how much money or sex or 
cars or no matter what you shove in this hole, it is not going to fulfill you. What a weird analogy. But the spiritual life says, but that yearning that you have, it can be fulfilled. You can step into a life of ever expansiveness, ever growing, ever having your reality completely shattered only to be replaced by something bigger and better, something that infinitely accepts you and loves you. And that's the importance of the spiritual path. That's the beauty of what it is. It rescues us from this small-minded garbage of trying to protect our reality and trying to manipulate our reality and trying to keep ourselves safe. We don't have to keep ourselves safe. This life is so dangerous. Everything about it is dangerous. We're actually going to die. And so what the Buddha presented is that if you can practice dying over and over and over in your life, it actually prepares you for the death you actually do have to go through. It's not through denial. It's not through repression. It's through stepping into a more expanded, a more fulfilled version of yourself. That's what the spiritual path gives you. And unfortunately, the opposite of this actually happens in a lot of religious paths, right? Because you get this intimation or insight that God's bigger, that there's more, that maybe the teachings you've been taught fall a little bit flat for some reason and you don't really know why. And so it's actually accepting that, going through that grief, allowing yourself and your perspective to die, which will open you up to experiencing something so much bigger, But unfortunately, a lot of people would rather, and I think this is really a a symptom of Western culture, a lot of people would rather abandon themselves and what they actually think, what they actually believe, in order to stay in alignment with the doctrine or the teaching or the family system or the beliefs of the culture or whatever it is. We'd rather abandon ourselves than actually accept that yeah, I don't think I believe that or I don't think that really works for me or whatever it is, right? And so, so many people end up resentful because they're continuously having to deny themselves, having to leave and abandon their actual beliefs, what they actually actually think for a different life. And this happens to us with our family systems too, not just God. Like Danielle pointed out one time, most people are unconscious replicas of their family system until they really start to go through that conditioning and and allow those previous patterns that they were living out, that they were born with, that they were raised with, to die. The spiritual practice is practice for that. But we're so scared to let go of the persona that we think is going to give us the acceptance that we think that we need, the end of the spiritual path, or perhaps even the beginning or middle of the spiritual path, shows you that you, again, do not have to earn your seat at the table, that you're part of all of this in some integral and substantial way, and that life took up form as you because there's something here to be accomplished as you. And so us trying to tell ourselves, well, I'm not that, I'm this. I'm, we're trying to keep our self-image. We're trying to keep it from evolving. We're like disagreeing with life itself, and that causes so much pain. And so there comes a time when all teachers, because these things become traps, all teachers, all paths, they have to at some point self-destruct, right? Because if they don't, that's, again, when you become a sort of unconscious replica. You can, you're like a mouthpiece for the belief system, but, but it's not changing you. Your heart's not, things in your heart aren't shifting around. So you're struggling with the exact same things over and over and over. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak pejoratively about that because we all have our struggles, but it's just the point that 
the spiritual path is liberation from the things we struggle with. It is liberation from this small view of reality. Again, if it's not walking you toward that, if the teacher's not self-destructing, if the path isn't self-destructing and opening up a wider, more expansive view of reality, then you're becoming trapped in it. You're becoming ensnared in it. This happens a lot with psychedelics or you know, even THC or uh, MDMA, things like that, that, that tend to open your consciousness, show you more of reality. But then what happens is the aperture closes back up. Now, when you touch the absolute, when you touch love for the first time, when you realize that you don't have to do anything because you are actually accepted as, as you are, when you touch that kind of love, there's a deep desire to want to go back to the well where you first found it. The reality is that these things are pointing you toward something deeper. The first time I ever did MDMA, I'll be honest, I was doing it to party. I was not doing it to, um, <laughs> to, to get higher consciousness. But something happened. I was at a bar and I had taken this MDMA and I was looking around and I all of a sudden felt as though my heart had just burst open. Like I just felt so much love for who I was. Now, this is a flood of serotonin, what's happening chemically here. But what's interesting is that I had convinced myself that I didn't really like love anybody. Like I felt like pretty cut off from my own emotions. And so often what I would do is I would just do what I thought people that had emotions and were connected to themselves would do in those experiences. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. I was like, man, I think I'm, I might be a sociopath because I just don't feel things. What I didn't realize is actually I feel really deeply, but not feeling things was a coping mechanism so that I could get along in a really brutal world where I really couldn't make sense of why we hurt each other, why I would hurt somebody else or something else. Like I have this great compassion that I that wasn't really fostered and nobody really knows how to foster these kinds of things anyway because we reduce the embodiment of compassion to a bunch of moral teachings. And so I was in this place where all of a sudden this MDMA hit. I had felt love like I'd never experienced in my entire life and it didn't go away. Like the next day I woke up realizing that there in some form of reality, in some version somewhere, that love does exist. Now, I found a path into that love through doing some of my own breath work, some of my own guided work. One of the reasons breath work is becoming so popular right now is because breath, spirit, it gives you a door in to what's essential about you so you can follow the breath into a deeper knowing of who you are and you can work through past experiences. Remember, the, the breath work that we're seeing today, it is a form of the spiritual path popping up, spirit, breath, wind, air, those are the, the same thing. And so because these a lot of these religious underpinnings aren't working for people anymore, their consciousness is expanding past what they were taught, they're finding things like breath work, they're finding things like psychedelic, they're, they're finding things that are helping open up their reality, they're giving them a connection to themselves. But you just have to be careful because you might end up always wanting to go back to that same well and then you get trapped there. Now it's no longer pointing you to more and more freedom. Now you're less free. Now you're beholden to something else. And so you want to make sure that you're looking at the moon and not the finger pointing at the moon, right? This MDMA, MDMA experience was actually the finger pointing at the moon. Religions are actually the finger pointing at the moon. The spiritual path, the great way, is the moon itself. 
you want to ensure that you're actually walking toward the love and not the the method you know not the not the drug so to speak and we could talk about this as not drugs too because think about the way in which we we have elevated eros love in our society romantic love sex things like that there's something that happens psychologically and the church is is to blame for this more than or just as much as anybody else but throughout history, the church has done a job because this is what happens when we aren't paying attention to the underlying ethic. We reduce it to a moral teaching. We tell people, well, just don't have sex. Well, something happens in your psyche. When you repress something, It become, your body, remember, you're seeking wholeness. So you're seeking this thing which has been repressed. And so what you do psychologically is you then elevate it to become the most important thing. And then you, what we have a society like we do now where we think that Eros love is the most is the most important love, but it's like probably the third or fourth most important love, actually. And it is a path to agape. It's a path to to what love actually is. And that's why we get so hooked on it. And so, you know, you meet somebody and they awaken that that love in you and you cannot believe that something like that existed. And then the aperture closes again, right? This is just, this is akin to the aperture of your consciousness closing when the drug wears off. And now you get hooked on the person, right? You're hooked on the method. You're hooked on the drug. You're hooked on the thing. It's no longer walking you toward more freedom. It's trapping you. And this is why we now have reality TV shows where we have all of these games where we try to make love a commodity. It's like, well, if I could, how could I get it this way? Could I get it this way? In reality, Eros is a path to agape. Genuine friendship and love, right? All of these are paths to the absolute. They're, they're waking up what's possible in you. And so you want to go toward what's possible, not the method. The genuine spiritual path will always leave you more free, full stop. And so at, there comes a time where you have to ask yourself, is the method trapping me? Because the goal is always to awaken the same energy in yourself. And if it doesn't do that, its goal is to trap you or control your behavior, right? When you read something like Jesus, who in the story is the embodiment of the underlying ethic behind the law, which is also love because God is love, all of these analogies become the same thing at a certain frequency. And when you read these stories, it's to open up that compassion in you, you know, when you read like the story of the adulteress that was about to be stoned, which is a really great metaphor for the way in which society loves to condemn people for their falling short of the mark. And Jesus asking, great, so, or Jesus saying, great, so anybody without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone and we'll get this lady killed. And he draws in the sand and looks up and realizes that everyone's gone. And then he asks her, where do they all go? Where are your accusers? And she's like, well, they all left. And he goes, well, neither do I judge you. You see, neither do I condemn you. That's the kind of love that's actually healing. That's the kind of love that actually makes us want to change. And that's the love we find on the spiritual path. The actual story, you're supposed to put yourself there. Again, has nothing to do with it happening in history. It has to do with it happening to you. And when you fall short, realizing that you feel the guilt and the shame of the collective all around you, but realizing that there is something, Jesus was the embodiment of that something in this story, there is something 
that accepts you full stop no matter what. There's nothing that you can do to get away from the infinite love of what is behind the phenomena when we use the word God, you know, what we use the word God for. It's realizing that all of these are pathways to finding that place in yourself where what you are is love. And you have to have that love modeled for you. And that's why we have stories and parables about it, so we can understand it. That's why we watch in the prodigal son, the father unconditionally accept his son, even though he blew his inheritance and was a complete jerk of a son, right? It's to wake these things up in yourself. It's so easy for the psyche to read it in a story. And we do this with our heroes all the time. We read it in a story and then to keep ourselves safe, we project it onto them. We say, well, they're like that, but I'm not like this. This doesn't pertain to me exactly. Because imagine if the hero that you worship was actually you, right? Was actually trying to wake you up. It's a whole different life that that calls you toward. It's a whole different experience to look at the parts of yourself that fall short of the mark and say, neither do I judge you. To realize that you are the Christ in that story, that there are parts of you that need to be accepted if they're going to be healed. One of those requires you dying, right? You now dying. You, the you that thinks you are not that, is the one that actually has to die in order to step into that. And so that's why if you are born again, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if not, then again, what you'll find is that you are constantly having to deny parts of reality. Reality, spirit is bursting into our lives all the time. It's transcending our boxes. It's ruining our categories. It's calling us to be more expansive. It's calling us to love each other in a way that is so much bigger than the tribal way in which we've known before. And the problem is that we are not answering that call. We're not stepping into it. We're not dying. We're on the sidelines. Like, man, that's really great for them. Jesus sounded like a really great guy. It's too bad what we did to him, huh? And all along, this is trying to be woken up in you. So we also have to be aware of the level of consciousness that we're being taught at, right? This is a lot of what episode two was about, but I tend to think of level of con- levels of consciousness as akin to perspective. And so if you have been raised or if you are in a spiritual path that is leveraging fear to teach you the lesson, then you're going to look out into the world and you're going to see fear. You're going to see what's scary. You're going to feel it all closing in on you because the place that you're standing actually influences what it is that you're seeing, right? If you were to take that fear and you were to figure out how to become more courageous, what you would see is that the world was actually full of opportunity, not things meant to hold you back. So this is what I'm talking about. It really matters where you are standing from. And it's not intellectual. You can't just tell yourself, well, just don't be afraid. It's like, well, you have all those fears, so you have to acknowledge them, so you have to go through them. Courage is on the other side of going through them, not denying them, right? And so in order to expand our level of consciousness, we have to go through that which we're the most afraid of. But it's a good way of highlighting what I'm talking about here because your disposition toward reality really affects the reality that you interact with and what you see. It really makes a difference whether you approach what you don't understand with curiosity or with fear because it it takes it from an obstacle to an opportunity, right? And you want to have a healthy level of both, of course, but just an important thing to say because we can we can teach the same lessons from different levels of consciousness. This is why in Power Verse Force, they took Jesus' original sayings 
in the Greek, and of course he was Aramaic, but Greek is the closest we have. And the consciousness level at which the teachings were taught was a thousand in a thousand point scale. This is ultimate freedom. This is the nexus point. This is touching the divine, right? This is, well, this is incarnating the divine. But then when they take the same teachings and then they use their scale to look at the consciousness level of version of his teachings, like the King James version, for example, in the Bible, that same consciousness level was a 400. So do you see the way we translate the same exact thing changes the way in which we interact with it and the way and what it means all together. So you have to be aware of the level of consciousness of the person that is teaching you. Now, I've talked a little bit about blind spots as we wrap up here. I want to talk about more. At the beginning of one of my theology classes, we were looking at some art and we were looking at Buddhist art and we were looking at Christian art. And one of the differences sort of across the board that you see, if you look at pictures of Christ and you look at renderings of the Buddha, one of the differences you see is that the Buddha has his eyes closed. He's looking within. And if you look at the pictures of Christ, he never has his eyes closed. They're always open. He's looking out into the world. You think about the the compassion of Christ for all of the disenfranchised members of the population, right? So he's looking out into the world. And I remember we were talking about that, but the way we were talking about it, I could hear other students condemning the looking within. Now, as I said, if you get in the helicopter, if the consciousness raises and you look around, you start to see that it's not you versus me. The wall, the the house is not red or blue. It's red and blue, right? And, And there's a way in which all of reality becomes dialectic, right? That's the both and. It's not either or. It's it's almost never either or. What feels like division, what feels like me versus this, at a higher level of consciousness, can that division gets essentially resolved within the person. So what I was really, what I was thinking when I was listening to people sort of condemn the view of looking in is like, well, there's your blind spots right there. Right? The Christian is so, so world-focused, so out-there-focused that they're not paying attention to their own inner life. Their shadow is, is growing behind them. And perhaps the Buddhist is so focused inward that the compassion isn't reaching the world, that, that it isn't helping the world. And I would say, if you think about two of the main arguments between the two, it's actually that. Right, It's that the, the Christian doesn't tend to focus on their own inner life, and the Buddhist tends not to be out in the world resolving issues. And the truth is, if we just look at the art, we're like, oh, those are the blind spots of those two paths. And so why would you not listen to that? What happens, condemnation, remember, is a way of defending one's own reality, which is to deny one's own blind spots. Because what you want, what the ego wants, is to say, no, I'm right. What I think is all that there is. That's what matters. That's a form of ego inflation. And unfortunately, it leaves you with the inability to experience the mystery because the mystery is between where you are and everything else. The mystery starts with what you don't know. And so if your entire world is about defending what you do know, you're closed off to the mystery. You're closed off to the healing powers of the divine. You're closed off to the ability to grow from the experience of touching awe. And I wanna end with this final quote by Zen Master Dogen who said, Find that person who awakens in you the desire for the great way and pay attention to nothing else. Slow down.
Yes, I know.